Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. This podcast sponsored by SaneBox.com. Dig your way out of the deluge of emails that have you buried. Get back to Inbox Zero. I now know it sounds like some impossible goal, like Indiana Jones fighting his way into the temple to get to it, but you can get to Inbox Zero, and I will tell you how later in the show. Joining us is Mark Hemingway, who I will say is fresh from an appearance on a radio program. I don't want to say any names, but the initials are NPR. And uh, the topic was science. <laughs> yes. And, and full disclosure, I am not a scientist. Mm-hmm. However, um, so are few other people that seem <laughs> to want to be debating the particular topic. And, and that's the problem, I think. The conversation started with the Brett Stevens column, his first column for the New York Times since leaving the Wall Street Journal. I was a huge Brett Stevens fan when he was at WSJ. Look forward to seeing his stuff. And he started off with the, hey, let's be reasonable about the conversation over climate change. And apparently the most unreasonable thing you can do is try to be reasonable. Well, let's be clear. This started before he even wrote his column. As soon as they announced him as a hire for the um, New York Times op-ed page, right. immediately there were whispers on the left, Brett Stevens is a climate change denier, and this is horrible, <laughs> and we cannot abide by this. Well, the truth is he's not a climate change denier at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he totally acknowledges the science behind climate change. It's just a question of values, and this is what I think so many people on the left can't wrap their head around, and this is what right. he tried to address in the column, I might add, which is to say that you, know, you can... Uh, believe in the science, but you can have different political opinions. And this is what is freaking out the left, because unless you believe in the worst case scenarios for climate change, um, there's something wrong with you. Um, and there's, you know, and if you're not spurred to do their poli- particular political program, there's something wrong with you. And this is bizarre to me, because my entire life, the one of the posturings from the left is, you just don't understand nuance. You right-wingers, you, you know, you only have a black and white view of the world. Okay, well, here, I've got a nuanced position on uh, global warming. The climate changes all the time. It seems reasonable that man would have some impact on it, but it could be the case that spending a trillion, literally trillions of dollars and crippling millions of jobs isn't worth the net outcome of that. There's a nuanced position. Suddenly their nuance is gone. Suddenly they're the most maniacal burner, she's a witch, Puritan you can find. Yeah, and they really are Puritans on the issue of the environment, which is not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about the environment and doing what we can to take care of things. But progress, such that it is, uh, and and economic progress in particular, has always had um, environmental costs. I am not lying awake at night because there are no longer massive (laughs) herds of buffalo uh, in the Midwest. Now, don't get me wrong, it is a minor tragedy. And, and I, and I, you know, I, I can see why people are upset about it. But at the same time, again, I'm not losing sleep over it. And in fact, I'm <laughs> sleeping quite nicely because I have centralized air conditioning, and I'm quite safe and healthy because of it. And as I just had to explain to my kids this weekend for the 17th time, the water in America and the air in America—they're both cleaner than they've been in 40 years, and they keep getting cleaner. There's this once again. This is part of the annoyance I have with the media and the people in the conversation. They keep conflating things. And and get back to the Brett Stevens thing again, because the New York Times, did they intentionally kind of goose people on this? Were they trying to drive clicks? Well, or what was going on? I don't exactly know what they were thinking, but clearly one of the things that really set people off is they promoted the heck out of this thing. I mean, they sent push alerts to everybody's phone who had the New York Times app on it, and uh, then people read the column, and then they were, you know, incensed. Um, but again, it's really baffling, because the entire point of the column is, you know, you shouldn't be too hubristic about you right. know, certainty and making predictions. And look, we know for a fact there have been all manner of climate 
science, environmental science predictions that are made that have been absolutely dire and outlandish that have not come to fruition. In 2007, Al Gore went around multiple times claiming that there was a new study out showing that there was like a 75% right. chance that the Arctic ice cap was going to melt in the next seven <laughs> years. Well, that was 10 years ago. Right. Um, and when this has happened again and again and again. Um, and it happens most often, not because the scientists themselves are bad. You know, the scientists tend to deal in technicalities and, and probabilities. And if you read their peer-reviewed papers, they're, you know, typically not the worst. But when that science collides with public policy mm -hmm. and political advocacy, all of a sudden it's you know off the charts right. abused. And that is a huge problem for climate science. How embarrassing is it to listen to the reporters who are talking about this? Because they know even less. And uh, 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 there's a Wall Street Journal piece that pointed out this week that because the global warming thing's been going on for about 38 years now, I think is the date they gave it, 37, 38, you have people who were you know, 45, let's say at the time, who were on the science beat. And so they've been covering it, and then they retired. Yeah. And so now who's who's left covering the story? It's largely people who were in you know, were not even born yet or were kids in school, and they grew up with this assumption in front of their eyes. There is no conversation here. It's all consensus. And then when they talk about the, quote, science it's frightening to me. They apparently know almost nothing about it. Well, the the problem is, is from the beginning, it's been almost eschatological of the way that they have um, chosen to cover this. Mm -hmm. You know, this is going to be man's undoing. It'll mm -hmm. be civilizational collapse in <laughs> Democratic president. Joel candidates saying it was the greatest national security threat, right. um, you know, instead of being more reasonable about it, which is to say that, A, this is a real phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It's going to have very, you know, dramatic and real mm -hmm. costs and effects on how we do things. We need to be prepared for what those are, but we can't for say for sure for what, what those are. So we're going we're to need to sort of do our best to feel our way through this and be prepared for some contingencies. That has not been the attitude. It has literally been, if you don't stop driving your car, the world is going to explode. <laughs> but where can you go to have that conversation? you just said, because you're not going to read that in the New York Times, obviously, except for if they let Brett Stevens keep writing. You're not going to see it on CNN. You're not going to see it on NBC. Where can Let's say that you are a rational person of the left who wanted to have that conversation. Where could you even go to have it? Well, I mean, thank goodness for the internet. I mean, obviously, oh, there are lots sure. of people that are obsessed with this but sort you know of thing I mean. from both the right and the left and have been sort of addressing mm -hmm. it. Um, but did, would the media give you a platform for Well, that? to be honest, even some of the mainstream reporters, like Andrew Revkin, who was a guy who was cited in Stephen's piece, and Revkin later came out and was very upset by Stephen's <laughs> piece. But the quote he cited from Revkin in the piece was pretty straightforward, and it was it was Revkin saying he saw a very dramatic you know change between mm -hmm. what the science was and what advocates were saying about Right. It in order to mm -hmm. enact their particular political program. I mean, Revkin said that, and, and he is a very credible voice on right. this, and I think a lot of people within the climate change community agree with this. There's a woman who uh, was the former head of the client science department at Georgia Tech, uh, and she has been on the forefront, you know, very much a client scientist of good standing, mm -hmm. trying to engage critics, trying to, you know, understand what's going on. And, and also, you know, she's also been calling out the excesses. Mm -hmm. When Michael Mann, the climate scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, I believe, um, you know, uh, uh, has been, you know, out there suing everyone that says <laughs> bad things about him. You know, she filed an amicus brief saying she thought his approach was unhelpful. But, and again, this is another function of the climate science people being extreme. I mean, so how was the conversation on the radio for you? Was, was it amicable? Was it helpful? It was NPR, so it was totally civil. Uh, it's like all <laughs> NPR interviews. And I, I don't get me wrong, I love going to NPR. They're very mm -hmm. prepared. They're very professional. And I'm always right. outnumbered four to one. <laughs> and every time I open my mouth, they announce that I am conservative. Right. Uh, and they don't bother announcing the other four people I'm on with are very, very liberal. They're not. No. Um, so, they're conservative and they're normal. But 
having said that, it's always a civil conversation. I think it's generally productive, and, and you know, I think NPR does a, a good job mm-hmm. in those sorts of things. You know, whether or not I need to be funding it with my tax dollars <laughs> is, a, is a separate question. Well, I don't want my money going to Scott Simon, but I'm a big fan of his show. One last question. It's the big question that we should all be asking about climate change. But before I get to that, I've got a question for the listeners. Are you buried by a ton of email? Do you wish there'd be enough global warming to burn its way through the thousands of emails that you're, the stuff you need is trapped among so you can get to inbox zero. Well, you don't need a cataclysm. You don't need an attack. All you need is SaneBox.com. SaneBox sorts through your emails, moves the trivial stuff into a different folder. When you open your inbox, the only messages there are the ones you want to see. And in addition to removing the junks, so you can focus on the messages that matter. There's a great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. And in my opinion, the best thing about SaneBox.com is that it works with your email, whatever system you have, Yahoo, Google, whatever, AOL. What? You can't still be using AOL. Are you really? Okay. Anyway, whatever it is, works to train that email so that the stuff you want is in your inbox and everything else is somewhere else, either where you can get it when you want it or never to be seen again. And you can try it for yourself. Don't take my word. Two-week free trial at SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. And then after two weeks, when you decide you can't live without it, which is what I did, then you can get a $25 credit when you buy. SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. Check it out today. And by the way, Mark Hemingway, that ad goes out to Joel. I read an email that I'd gotten at podcasts at weeklystandard.com last week from someone who said they hated it when I hid the sponsorship inside the you know, podcast. And so I did it right up front for that guy. Well, then Joel emailed podcasts at weeklystandard.com and said, no, 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 I like when you made it. I kind of try to figure out where it's going to be. So, Joel, that was for you. I hope you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Okay. The big question for you, Mark Hemingway, what is the question people should be asking reporters and activists in science about global warming, climate change, and their problem, whatever it is, with the Brett Stevens piece? Oh, gosh. I mean, I wish I could answer that question better. But a big part of the problem we've discussed is that there's been such a poor conversation mm-hmm. in terms of quality around it. Right. There's a total lack of nuance. I mean, I think what we need from the scientific community is we need a range of of problems that we need to address, which is to say that, you know, well, we need to prepare well. Mm-hmm. At a minimum, this is what we should be dealing with. And, mm-hmm. and the worst case scenario is this. And what can we right. do to be prepared for, you know, the, the basic contingencies that we're going to have to deal with, given the range of problems that we're faced with? I have a trick answer to that question. What? I always say, you're at, when, when someone says global warming, I say, you're absolutely right. We absolutely, what do you want to do and how much will it cost? Well, and exactly. Then, and there's no answer. So, like, no, no, no. So what do you want? So they'll say, well, I think we should. Well, will that solve the problem? Well, no, of course not. The, the, because humans put relatively little carbon and uh, 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 greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and because they're such a small part of the atmosphere to begin with, you're trying to take you know, one tiny pepperoni off of a huge pizza and slice enough out of that one tiny pepperoni to make a difference. Well, that means you got to get rid of that pepperoni. In other words, humans have to stop emitting carbon to have any measurable impact. And once you get them to concede that fact, well, then everything falls apart because everybody knows no, and until there's some technological revolution, we're not going to have people sitting in the dark rubbing sticks together for right. fuel. We're not going to tell people you can't go to your factory and work. You can't go to your office and work because that's just not going to happen. But that's what they're calling for. But no one ever asks a simple question. Okay, what do you want to do and how much will it cost? Well, well, that's the big tell right there is, you know, 95% of the solutions and discussion thrown right. forward revolves around politics. Exactly. And revolves around shifting power and money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it really were a serious problem 
uh, really were a problem on the level that they say it is, there would be there should be much more discussion about technological solutions and, sure. and other things like that. But you know, as it is, I mean, you know, the Obama administration put tariffs on Chinese solar panels. Why would you do that? We need solar panels. We, exactly. If, well, they did you, that because they'd given a quarter of million of my dollar, a quarter billion of my dollars to Solyndra, and Solyndra moved to China. Well, it wasn't just Solyndra, and, and in that particular right. case, uh, there was a a German-owned solar panel <laughs> company in Oregon that had a very good lobbyist. Um, ah, okay. But um, you know, again, you see that sort of thing, you, you know, on and on again, where very mm-hmm. often uh, it's reflected in the political priorities, uh, how they actually right. view things at the end of the day. Um, and believe me, it's not just uh, the, the the Republicans that. that don't take the climate science as seriously as they would like. It's Democrats. Only you know, it's only good insofar as it right. helps them politically. When I see a politi- a brave politician fighting for Mother Earth, stand up in front of his or her constituents and say, "I want a law that takes away all of your cars," then I'll know that they're serious do about. You, do you really want to dare Bernie Sanders? Because. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he'll do it. Yeah, but he would have a big community car. He'd be like the you know big social, like we'd all share right. the sure. car, each driving according to his ability, each riding according to his need. Uh, Mark Hemingway, we need to get you on the podcast again soon. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Daily Standard Podcast. You can find all our podcasts at weeklystandard.com, or better still, just subscribe to them at iTunes or Google Play by searching weekly standard when you subscribe you'll never miss an episode of the daily standard including our special features the confab every weekend and crystal clear every friday plus you can leave reviews of the podcast and let people know that you found content that you enjoy don't enjoy it have a question comment or complaint just email podcasts at weeklystandard.com thanks again for listening i'm your host michael graham